0: Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to the first book of the Bible, Genesis, and now at chapter 13, and on page 9 in your pew Bible. Tonight, we continue our study in the story of Abraham, God's pilgrim. Uh, We started two weeks ago, so you haven't missed a lot. Uh, Back in chapter 12, beginning at verse 1, we saw God called Abram on a journey uh, to leave his kindred and his country and his father's house and to follow the Lord, to go where God called him to go. And God made incredible promises to him. He promised him a people. He promised him a place. He promised him protection and a purpose and a plan. He promised him a people. I'll make you a great nation and you're going to have offspring. He promised him a a place. He he took him to a land that he would give to him, the land of promise. And he promised him protection. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who dishonor or curse you, I will curse. So he's going to stand up and on Abraham's side, protection. He promised him a purpose. He said, go and be a blessing. Be a blessing to people. And he promised him a plan that through Abraham... And his offspring, culminating in Jesus, God was going to bless all the families of the earth. So incredible promises we saw in chapter 12, 1 to 9. Abraham immediately believes and obeys. He goes and he does. He shows great faith initially. <laughs> and then last week we saw he, great, he shows great failure of faith. He royally messes up. In chapter 12, verses 10 to 13, verse 4, we saw him slip up. But God kept hold of him. He failed the test of famine, but God was faithful to him. He got sidetracked, but God restored him. Because saving grace is preserving grace. And God keeps hold of his people whom he has graced. Now we've seen all of that. Tonight we see, uh, again, Abraham encounter a trial this time not a trial of famine but a trial of prosperity how does he handle it how does his nephew lot who's with him handle it and how should we handle the trial and temptation of prosperity as well we're going to think about these things from God's word in Genesis 13 verses 5 to 18 and And let me invite you then to hear the word of the Lord. We're picking up at verse 5. In verses 1 to 4, we've heard that Abram has has come back to the Lord and to the land of promise. And he's come back filthy rich uh, with Lot. And now at verse 5 and Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the lord like the land of egypt in the direction of zoar this was before the lord destroyed sodom and gomorrah so lot chose for himself all the jordan valley and lot journeyed east thus they separated from each other abram settled in the land of canaan while lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as sodom Now, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Amen. Amen. This is God's word. May you write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would speak to us. We pray that you would help me. Grant that the words of my mouth. Grant that the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Show us your glory. Shape us by your word for your honor and praise. We, We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Abram experiences a second trial. The last one, he failed. In John Bunyan's work, Pilgrim's Progress, which I'm reading, and I keep putting it down it's not picking it back up if you really want to know the truth. Uh, and they say it's like, besides the English Bible, like the number one most... Proliferated book in the world. It's a challenge, but there, there's a character named Christian and there's a character named Hopeful, and they are together traveling, and they turn aside into Bypath Meadow, where they are found and captured by Giant Despair, who takes them to Doubting Castle. He throws them into the dungeon there without any food or water or light, and he urges the pilgrims to do away with themselves because their fate is sealed. Now, hopeful argues Christian out of taking that option, but all is bleak. Once the giant takes them to the courtyard and he shows them the remains of previous specimens he had torn apart, and he tells them that in 10 days... He will do the same to them. So on Saturday night about midnight, the two pilgrims begin to pray and they pray on almost till dawn. And suddenly Christian exclaims, what a fool am I? Thus to lie in a stinking dungeon when I may as well walk at liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise That will, I am persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. It worked on the dungeon door. It worked on the outward door to the castle yard. And though the lock worked hard, even the iron gate to the whole complex opened and off they went. Back to the king's highway. Now Abraham had a key called promise. And at the end of Genesis 12, he forgot to make use of that key. And he wandered from the way, but the Lord brought him back home and he began to believe the promise again. And tonight in Genesis 13, we see Abram, the pilgrim, believing the promises of God. But we see Lot not walking after the same pattern. And so we see in this chapter, the chapter is set up for us to really contrast the way of Lot and the way of Abram. And so we want to do that tonight. The problem here is the trial of prosperity, as we said, and the family strife that came about because they had grown so rich and wealthy. They had gathered so many people to them, and they had so many animals and livestock, and they were together in one place, and so the resources to feed the sheep and to water the animals was limited, and so there began to be... Strife. There began to be arguments between the shepherds that belonged to Lot and the shepherds that belonged to Abraham and they began to fight with one another. And Abraham can see all this and he doesn't want it to rise all the way up into his relationship with his nephew. And so he has to deal with this. It's not the trial of famine like in chapter 12 where he was tempted to self-reliance and then lied to protect his wife at the cost nearly, or lied to protect himself at the cost nearly of his wife to Pharaoh, but it is the trial of prosperity and the temptation to selfishness and greed and to provide for himself at the cost of strife with his nephew Lot. So there's a kind of parallel here, but opposites. We should just pause there and recognize that as you and I make our pilgrimage, as we follow Jesus to, to the heavenly city, we're going to face various trials some famine some prosperity in all other manner and we are bound to face trials not because we are weak in faith but in order actually to strengthen faith god uses them that Way, like an athlete in a gym needs to go from one apparatus to another in order to build up every part of his body, so too with us. Every part of the new life of God in us needs to be strengthened, it needs to be worked, it needs to be exercised. We are called to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, and that means. We have to have our faith exercised, and Abrams is exercised here. So they face this trial and a testing and a temptation, and how do they deal with it? Well, they're standing at this point near Bethel. They had come all the way back to uh, the promised land, and and Bethel, or near it, is there's a major crossroads north-south and another crossroads uh, east-west, passages through the hill country. And it's on a prominent height, so from there they could see in every direction a vast stretches of land. And Abram turns to Lot, and he proposes a solution. Lot, he says, you choose the land you want, and I'll take the leftovers. You look out there, and you decide where you'll go. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. And so what happens? What happens? Well, Lot shows himself to be a bad example of how God's pilgrims ought to walk in this world, but Abraham shows himself to be a positive example of how God's pilgrims ought to walk in this world, and so I want to do two things tonight. I want you to think about the bad example of Lot and how not to walk, and I want to highlight two things, and then I want you to see the positive example of Abraham and how to walk, and I want you to think about five things. So seven things. Verses 10 to 13, the negative example of Lot, how not to live. Verse 10, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. So Lot chose for himself, verse 11, all of the Jordan Valley, and he journeyed east and thus they separated from each other. He chose selfishly. Now, why do I say that? Lot selfishly grasps the best as he sees it for himself. Now, Lot's choosing of the land here is out of the ordinary and it's out of the custom of the day. The elder member of the family, the patriarch, as it were, would have had the right to make the first choice. Uh, and granted Abram cedes that right and says Lot you choose but we find nothing here where Lot says no 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 father Abraham you choose I'll defer to you it's not right that I take the best of the land you take the best of the land father Abraham and I'll take the leftovers he doesn't insist on that he doesn't argue the point Now, some people would say Lot was being very smart, and Abraham, well, he was kind of being dumb. Lot knew the world was his oyster. He knew that he who dies with the most toys wins. He he, uh, he was looking out for himself because there was no one else in this world who would. Yet Abraham knew that this world is not all this that there is, and that God was looking out for him, and so he was free to offer it up. To not grasp and hold on. But Lot here doesn't seem to be concerned about the priorities of Abraham. He doesn't seem to have the same kinds of cares. But he looks and he sees the best. And he says, I'll take that. Like if you are sharing a porterhouse steak with somebody. You know what a porterhouse steak is? porterhouse is a, it has to be, I read like at least an inch and a half thick to be called a porterhouse uh, and it's, it's basically a T-bone steak with a uh, bone like a T down through it. Now on one side of it is the New York strip steak and on the other side of it is the filet, the filet mignon. And if you want a feast, you just get the whole porterhouse and you get both parts, but it can be cut off and you can get just the filet. That's the better part. It's the smaller portion, but it's much better. And Lot says, I'll take the filet. You go ahead and have the T-bone. It would be sort of like having a half a cake on the counter if steak's not your thing. And you're standing there with somebody and they're hovering over it and they're getting ready to go ahead of you and they they cut first and they take what they want and what they leave you is the crumbs and a little drip of icing. And they walk away with the whole platter. That's not an exact parallel, but it's something I think of the attitude we see in Lot. Abram's attitude was self-deferential, Lot was self-preferential, selfish. And he chose by sight and not by faith. Verse 10, he sees that the land is very fertile. And the description is that it's like, and he must have had the description passed down, it's like the Garden of Eden. It's like the Garden of Luxury. It was so well watered. It's like where they had been in Egypt previously, where there was plenty of water because of the Nile. And he just experienced famine, so you understand why he cares about good watering places. But that's all he's looking at, and the writer is telling you that when he throws into the narrative, verse 13, and sort of as an oh-by-the-way says, what? Says, and oh-by-the-way The men of Sodom were wicked and great sinners against the Lord. And Lot is going in the direction to pitch his tent near to Sodom. He evidently doesn't foresee the destruction of Sodom, and how could he? But he ought to have seen the danger of living in and around and near and among the Sodom people. But he doesn't take heed. He doesn't. uh, He doesn't live with caution. Uh, There was uh, George Will recently was telling the story uh, about a bank failure in 1995. Bearings founded in 1762 was Britain's oldest merchant bank. It weathered the Napoleonic Wars and two world wars, and its clients included Queen Elizabeth II, and then one of its young traders, Nick Leeson, in the bank's Singapore office, was so skillful at navigating the derivatives markets that at one point he produced 10% of the bank's profits. Yet he was inadequately supervised. He created a secret bearings account from which he made risky bets, including a huge gamble on Japan's stock market, rising, and yet he couldn't anticipate the Kobe earthquake that that sunk Japan's stock market, plunging the bank into enormous losses which they could not cover, and so the bank collapsed and was bought by a a Dutch company for one British pound. One guy unchecked with greed unaccountable taking great risks not foreseeing all the dangers nearly ruined everything and that's what happens here with lot lot does it seems what abram did in the last chapter but worse in chapter 12 abram took his family his wife into danger not foreseeing her danger, his loss, or God's judgment on Pharaoh. Now Lot takes his family, his wife and his daughters, into danger, not foreseeing their danger, his loss, or God's judgment on Sodom. He's a chip off the old block. He's just like Uncle Abraham, except Abraham was changed, repented, and came back to the Lord in his heart and life. And Lot doesn't seem to have learned the lessons of Abraham here. J.C. Ryle says this, Lot chose by sight and not by faith. He asked evidently no counsel of God to preserve him from mistakes. He looked to the things of time and not of eternity. He thought of his worldly profit and not of his soul. He considered only what would help him in this life, and he forgot the solemn business of the life to come. This was a bad beginning. And what we find is that though he saw many advantages, he missed or ignored the dangers. He saw the perks, but um, but not the perils. And by the time you get to chapter 19, he loses his moral background. He loses his family. He nearly loses his life. And most of that comes from what he didn't see in chapter 13. And so his assessment here seems to be superficial and worldly. He's looking with the eyes of the world and not the eyes of faith. And so we just pause here at the end of uh, recounting Lot's portion of the story and we reflect that this ought to be a cautionary tale for us all. That we ought to plead with God for discernment. uh, The discernment we need when we can't really see uh, what, what's true when, when obvious appearances seem great but there might be hidden dangers, we should ask the Lord and we should ask our, for help and for wisdom and we should ask ourselves these kinds of questions. Is what I'm about to do going to put, uh, put, put in danger or jeopardy my marriage? Is it going to put in danger or jeopardy my family, my children, or my relationship with my children? Will it disrupt my ability to gather with the people of God in corporate worship? Am I going to be isolated? Uh, will it desensitize me to sin and evil and, and encourage me to kind of go along with the crowd? And we should pray, Lord, will make me truly able to see the dangers before me because there are dangers everywhere. Well, that's Lot. Abraham, by contrast, is a very positive example of how a pilgrim should live. And I want to highlight five things from the story of Abraham here. And in the first place, I want you to see that God's pilgrims aim to live at peace with people above prosperity. Abram sees verse 8 that there's all this strife and family strife on account of how rich they've become. And he says to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. And so Abraham sacrifices right to the best. He could have just said, I'm going to take the best land. and You go elsewhere. But for the sake of peace, he puts the relationship with Lot ahead of his personal prosperity. Abraham doesn't do the thing that he had every right to do. He had seniority. But he was wise enough to know not to do it. And he cared enough to want to be on good terms with Lot and not cause greater strife. And so he proposed that they divide. Now that didn't mean that Lot had to choose to go towards Sodom. And it wouldn't have meant Abraham would have had to go towards Sodom. Look north, look south, look east, look west. Pick whichever way you want to go and I'll just go away from you. Just so that we won't be fighting. Now why, just pause there, why was Abraham able to do that? Why was able to, Abraham able to put peace with Lot ahead of prosperity? Well I think it reflects God's treatment of him. He had been shaped by how God had treated him. God, in chapter 12 and chapter 13, 1 to 4, had been willing to live at peace with Abraham, though Abraham had royally screwed up, nearly severed, if he could have done so, the relationship. But God reconciled, and God said, I will live at peace with you. God welcomed him back, and, and so he was able to say, Lot, I want to have good relations with you. The the Lord wants to have good relations with me. And so out of that, he was able to do so. Um, And so likewise for us, Jesus has made peace for us with God. And the Bible says now, insofar as it is up to you, live at peace with all men. Even if you have to give up some property or money for the sake of doing so. Now, the second thing you see is this. Pilgrims enjoy the freedom of the generosity of God. Abraham had received incredible generosity from God, so he was free to say to Lot, there's plenty of room for us both. We don't need to fight over this. In other words, he trusted God's promise. God had promised the land to his seed, and he rested in that so that he could say to himself, Lot, no matter what choice you make, God will see to the promise that he's promised me. And so he doesn't have to try to manipulate things here. God promised me the land. Lot, whichever part you take, it's not going to undo the promise of God to me. He was living by faith in the generosity of God to him. And so he was able to be generous to others. Uh, it, it brings to mind, you know, the story of 2 Samuel chapter uh, 15, where Abraham is fleeing Jerusalem because Absalom is seizing the throne. And David's loyalists are, are, are um, they're, um They're leaving the city, but Abiathar and Zadok, the high priest, show up. Uh, with some of the Levites and they have the Ark of the Covenant with them and Absalom, well, he's going to get the city and he's going to get the throne and and David's loyalists think, but what what he won't get is he won't get the priesthood and he won't get the Ark and he won't get the physical uh, symbol of the presence of God with his people. We'll take those things for ourselves. And David says, no, 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 don't do that. Take the Ark of God back to the city. And if I find grace in the Lord's eyes, he'll bring me back. And he'll allow me to see both it and the residents. But if he says, I do not delight in you, well, here I am. Let him do to me as he uh, seems good to him. So he basically says to his friends, look, we're not going to go down that road. We'll walk by faith and not by superstition. Having, having God's furniture, says Ralph Davis, doesn't mean you have God's favor And so David's words are not despairing, but they're freeing. He's placed himself under God's sovereign care. He knows he's in God's hands who loves him and has made great promises to him. And so he doesn't have to manipulate things to get his own way. And so likewise here, Abraham has the freedom to be generous because God has made great promises to him and nothing Lot will do is going to take that away. And so too for us, if we know how rich we are in Christ and that God is for us and not against us, it frees us to be generous. It is not prosperity that will make you generous. I know for some of us we think if I just got a little wealthier then I could really be generous with my money. It's not prosperity that will make you generous. It's faith. It's believing that God is for you and not against you. This is, this is what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter uh, eight. He says Second um, Corinthians uh, chapter eight, one to five. He writes to the Corinthians he says, "I want you to know, my brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part." For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. They had an abundance of joy in the gospel of God. They knew God was for them, and though they were, uh, they were poor, they gave abundantly beyond their ability. When you know that you are an heir to an imperishable fortune in heaven, that you are a co-heir with Christ of all things, and that your Father will take care of you even in the meantime, you know that you lose nothing when you give your money away. You know you lose nothing in the long run. You get it all back and then some because you're rich in christ as a co-heir and it frees you to be generous because god has been generous with you i think that's what we're seeing here with abraham i'm not going to lose anything lot you go ahead take the best and the third thing we see here is he lives here he clings to the word of god's promise god comes to him lot lifts up his eyes sees the best takes it and goes then god comes to abraham verses 14 and following and he basically reiterates his promise that you're going to have the land, but the land is not just for your offspring. He deepens the promise. It's for you and for your offspring. And then he says, you're going to have an offspring so numerous that it's like the dust of the earth. And if you could count the dust of the earth, well, then you could count the number of offspring you're going to have. Okay, so he's going to go from a great nation with lots of offspring to to, uh, deepening the promise and spelling it out more clearly just how great this promise is. And yet we know that Abraham continued to live like a pilgrim, like an alien in Canaan. The only piece of property he bought was a burial site. He lived in a tent and not in a house. He was waiting for the fullness of the promise, which is not a dry, dusty bit of land in the Middle East, but is the new heavens and new earth itself. He knew that God had promised him a heavenly country, that that, whose designer and architect is God, says Hebrews 11. So he was waiting on that. He received the promises, Hebrews says, but he didn't receive what was promised. He had the promises, but he didn't have the fulfillment of them in his own lifetime. You might say, well, I'm glad I'm not in that kind of situation, but we are in that kind of situation. We live on this side of an empty cross and an empty tomb and a filled or occupied throne But we have not yet, like Abraham, we have not yet received the fullness of all that God has promised to us. We wait, as Jesus said to us in in John 14, In my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, I would have told you. And so I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come back and take you to where I am. We haven't received that yet. We're standing in the not yet Land just like Abraham. And so we claim like Abraham to the promise. That's how we live as pilgrims. And then also we can enjoy the foretaste of God's goodness. That's the fourth thing. Pilgrims, God's pilgrims enjoy the foretaste of God's goodness. At verse 17, after making the great promises, God says to him, now Abraham, arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Go see it go contemplate it, go meditate on it. And he went and he walked and he surveyed it. And walking around the land was what kings in that day did to symbolize their, um, their dominion. We know the Egyptian kings did it. We know the Hittite kings did it. They would, they, they would walk around a city to show that the city belonged to them. He's, he's given the royal treatment here and he's enjoying a foretaste of a greater fulfillment. Uh, if you were to visit one of these local pubs that we have around town, whether it's 28 or the new one, um, down here in in downtown, we offer all kinds of, like, uh, micro-brew offerings. And uh, there are so many choices and selections that if you're the son of a man who only drank the cheapest American beer out of a can that he could get, and you don't have a lot of family knowledge about what's the best kind of beer to have. And so when confronted with all the various possible selections, sometimes the one waiting on you will say, well, can I get you a little taste? You could try it before I bring you a pint. And so they bring out a little foretaste of what might come later if you uh, choose that, but it is a little bit of the same thing you'll have later. If that's not your kind of illustration, well, then just go to Sam's Club because they do the same thing. If you catch him at the right time, you know, down the meat aisle, there's somebody cooking something for you and offering for you to get the whole thing and take it home, right? Well, this is, this is, what, this is what Abraham was experiencing. He's being given a foretaste of, of, of um, God's greater and precious promises. And this is the way that we are to live as pilgrims. This is how we are to live. In fact, this is the way you ought to think of the Lord's Supper. What you have in the Lord's Supper here is is a foretaste. Matthew chapter 8, verse 11 says, Jesus saying, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. You haven't been with them at that table yet, shoulder to shoulder. And you have not yet experienced the marriage supper of the Lamb that Revelation 19 speaks about, of which this is but a foretaste. It is God's gracious appetizer, so to speak, telling you there is so much more in fullness that yet awaits you. Enjoy it and live by faith in what it promises. And then finally you see at the very end of verse 18 and following uh, that Abraham, what does he do in response to all of this? Well... Uh, Abraham builds an altar to the Lord. Once again, time after time, we see Abraham building an altar and worshiping the Lord, bringing praise, public praise to God. Uh, The man with the promises of God, the woman who believes the promises of God, worships God. And that's what Abraham does here. There's a wonderful story in a book called the Westminster Shorter Catechism Illustrated. Uh, it's, a, it's a little book about the, the Westminster Catechism giving all kinds of anecdotes and illustrations about, uh, about wonderful things. And it was written, um, it's, it's the story of a theology professor in the United Secession Church in Scotland. He died in 1844. Um, but before he became a theology professor, of course, he was, like all of us, once a child, and when he was a child, at the age of 10, his father died. Now, he had been in the habit of bringing the books to the family table that his father would use to lead the family in worship. As they would gather together, they would read, they would sing. And so the young 10-year-old would, would go off and get the books and bring them to his father so that they could worship together. Well, on the day that his father Died on the evening of it after his death, he got up from the table and he went and he got the books and he brought them to his mother. And he was met with an irrepressible outburst of sorrow on her part. But he comforted his mother saying to her that God, who had taken away his father, would be a father to them. And that he had promised to hear their prayers. And so he added, we must not go to bed tonight without worshiping him. That's the pilgrim attitude. You can't just stop worshiping God when he has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You go on worshiping. You repeatedly come back to the public praise of God to give thanks to him that's what pilgrims do that's what Abraham did and that's what God calls us to now the fact is we're often more like Lot than Abraham and perhaps we know how selfish and self-centered and self-serving we have been and how we have looked at the world through the eyes of the world and not with the eyes of faith. Well, Jesus came and he was not like Lot. He was like Abraham here, but perfect. And he was willing to give up everything because he had everything from God so that in giving it up, he could get you and give to you everything that belongs to him. And so... Whether you know yourself tonight to be more like Lot or more like Abraham, all of us need the perfect pilgrim who is Jesus to save us and to help us. Let's look to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you that um, your word is true. Um, There are hard lessons here, there are ways we don't even know our own hearts our own failures, our own mixed motives. Uh, We pray that you would uh, teach us, strengthen us, help us to walk with you believingly. And thank you that Jesus died for people like us. In his name I pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.